As we approach God's word this morning, I invite you to bow with me in a word of prayer. Our loving Father, we thank you for the privilege that we have to open your holy, inspired, and inerrant word, that we can hear your voice speak to us through this text. And we pray that you would please open our minds, humble our hearts, and enable us to hear your truth and to live and act and respond according to it. It's in Jesus' mighty name we pray, amen. Well, it is easy for us as humans to make assumptions about things and in those assumptions for us to be terribly wrong. I'm sure you have your own examples of ways in which you assume something, maybe in a relationship or a situation, and only to find out that you were uh, sorely mistaken. But such was the case, as the story goes, of a famous actress from a former era, Billy Burke. She was enjoying a transatlantic ocean trip when she noticed that a gentleman at the table next to hers was suffering from a bad cold. And she asked, are you uncomfortable? The man nodded and she replied, I'll tell you what you should do for it. Go back to your stateroom, drink lots of orange juice, take two aspirins, cover yourself with all the blankets you can find, sweat the cold out. I know just what I'm talking about. I'm Billy Burke from Hollywood. Which is a problem we still have today of Hollywood uh, personalities speaking beyond their knowledge. <clears throat> but needless to say, the man smiled warmly and introduced himself in return, says, thanks, I am Dr. Mayo of the Mayo Clinic. <laughs> Talk about a surprise, right? She assumed that she was the expert in the room at that time, but she was sorely mistaken. She made assumptions about her and that man she was with, and she was dead wrong. And friends, the, the same thing can happen when we come to Easter. There can be assumptions that are made about the events of Easter and about the significance of Easter. And these assumptions can often end us up in the wrong place. Until they see the truth for themselves, they don't really know why these things happened. But our passage this morning is going to help us to set the record straight. It's going to help us to see what took place 2,000 years ago with this man named Jesus and why it is so important for us today. And as we look at these details, I believe you'll be surprised by what we find. Easter was not something that was fabricated by some devout religious followers of Jesus the days after his life. Easter is not something that just happened by accident, that there was some random course of events that suddenly came together. Easter was not just meant to be a good example for moral people to follow. And Easter is not just something for Christians. Easter is something for every single person upon this planet because it can radically change every single person's life. I invite you this morning to open your personal copy of God's Word, the Bible, to Luke chapter 18. And if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, we have some provided for you in the pew rack directly in front of you. And you'll find our passage this morning on 1043, on page 1043. 
And let me just say, if you don't have your own personal copy of the Bible, we'd love to send one home with you today. And if you go to our Connect Corner, they'll be able to connect you with a Bible that you can take home with you uh, today. But Luke chapter 18 is in the midst of the part of Jesus' life where he's on his way to Jerusalem. He's spent his ministry teaching the peoples about who he is and he is now finishing out his life in his ministry and he is steadfast and determined to go to Jerusalem. He is going to be entering that capital city. There will be uh, significant things that take place which we call his Passion Week. Some significant events throughout the course of that week. And you might wonder, does he know what's going to take place? Does he know what is awaiting him? Our passage reveals that indeed that he does. He knew the details. But he wanted to set the record straight with his disciples. He didn't want the men that were following him that he was investing in and training and mentoring, he didn't want them to suddenly be shocked and be thrown off when the events took place. He wanted them to know what was coming in advance. And so follow along as I read just our few verses this morning. Luke chapter 18, verses 33. 1 through 34. God's word says this, and taking the 12, he being Jesus said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the son of man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. They understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them and they did not grasp what was said. Friends, as we look at these verses this morning, we're going to see four surprising facts about Easter. Four surprising facts about Easter that will prompt us to see why Jesus came and how you and I should respond to him. Let's look at the first fact that we're surprised by in this text. First, we're surprised by the intentionality of God's plan. We're surprised by the intentionality of God's plan. And we see this in verse 31. Now, it would be easy to look at the death of Jesus and evaluate it from a strictly historical perspective and say, well, man, yeah, that guy had some good intentions. He tried his best. He tried to make his message heard, but he just got mixed up with the wrong people. He just got the wrong people on his side and he ended up getting himself killed. Or we might think that, you know, Jesus should have had maybe a little bit more perception to be able to see that there was this rising tide of animosity, you know, you might want to get out of the way, and yet here he is walking straight into the mouth of the lion. You think that Jesus wouldn't have plowed right ahead into the hands of his enemies if he knew what was taking place. But the Bible doesn't allow us such perspectives. It's clear from a number of passages, and especially our passage here this morning, that, that Jesus' death upon the cross was not an accident. It was not a miscalculation by Jesus, where he happened to get things a little mixed up. He was blinded to what was going on. Surprisingly, what we see in verse 31 is that what took place to, to Jesus was all a part of God's plan from the beginning. Look at verse 31. It says, And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will 
be accomplished. There's a sobriety with this event. Jesus knows what's coming and yet he recognizes the importance of pulling aside his disciples and having a personal word with them. And so it says that he took the 12. These were the 12 men that Jesus had selected to be his disciples that he had sent out as his apostles. These are known as his official representatives, the 12 disciples. And these are the men that he invests in so that when he left the earth, they would be commissioned to carry on the message when he was gone. He spent almost three years with these men. He's poured into them in terms of how to live, how to think, what to believe, what to teach. And here he's going to pull them aside and tell them something important as they are only a few days away from entering Jerusalem. Now, officially, in the gospel narrative, this is the third time that Jesus has given a specific prediction about his death and resurrection. This is not the first time the disciples have heard this. This is the third official one with other illusions that were given along the way. In the book of Luke, the two others were in chapter 9, Luke 9.22 and Luke 9.44. But here, this final prediction has the most details. He gives the most complete picture of what will happen. And there's a seriousness and a solemnity to this event. There's great popularity. There's lots of people going around Jesus, but Jesus pulls aside for some time with these 12 men. And there's no doubt about where they're going. Notice what Jesus says. See or behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. There's no doubt. We're not debating whether we're going to go. Jesus is not unsure about where he's headed. He knows exactly where he's headed. He is going to Jerusalem. And notice that the disciples are going with him. It's not, I am going to Jerusalem. He says, we are going to Jerusalem. You are coming with me because these men will be crucial witnesses of the cross, of, what took, of how Jesus dies, and will be crucial witnesses of his resurrection as well. They're all going to this capital city. But why are they going to Jerusalem? And what can they expect when they get there? Jesus makes it clear. We're going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. Jesus makes it abundantly clear that what will take place in Jerusalem is not going to be out of chance. It's going to be directly according to God's plan, a plan that God revealed beforehand by the mouth of the prophets. It was God's plan revealed by the prophets and recorded for us in the pages of Scripture. Peter, the apostle who was also here at this time, listening to this, says something similar in Acts chapter 2, where he says that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. It was a plan written down in the Old Testament. Now, many people today will say that you know, the Old Testament, that just needs to be abandoned. The Old Testament, you know, that was for the Jews. Christians today, people today, we, we just need to unhitch ourselves from that, all those books that are antiquated. But friends, do you see how Jesus' very mission to do the central thing that's found within Christianity is rooted in the Old Testament? What he is going to do is is according to the plan revealed by God by the prophets. And it will be accomplished. 
Jesus here identifies himself as the Son of Man. Now that might sound like a a funny way to talk today for us to talk about the Son of Man. It reminds me a little bit of uh, Narnia where he talks about the sons of Adam and daughters of Eve, this kind of uh, literary way that we might speak. But here his reference to Son of Man is a clear reference to Daniel chapter 7, a prophet of the Old Testament, in which there it was revealed that one like a son of man is brought before God and all the peoples of the earth bow down and worship and serve this one like a son of man. Therefore, even though he's like a son of man, he's clearly a divine figure as well because only God receives worship and service in that way. People today will say, well, Jesus never really claimed to be God We don't have a verse where Jesus says, I am God. It's true, those exact words aren't found in the pages of the New Testament. But Jesus made many references to his deity. And even using the title, Son of Man was one of them. His audience understood that when he used the title Son of Man, and he was referencing back to Daniel 7, that clear divine figure who was receiving worship of the nations, they knew he was claiming to be a divine figure. And you know what? His, his enemies even understood that too. It's not just like his followers made that up. His enemies, as we see in John chapter 10, verse 30, where Jesus says, I and the Father are one. And the Jews knew exactly what he meant. He was claiming to be like the Father. And so they say this, we are going to stone you, Jesus, for blasphemy because you, being a man, make yourself God. His, make no mistake about it, his enemies knew what he was saying and what he was claiming. And so here in Luke chapter 18, Jesus once again says that he's the promised Messiah figure of Daniel 7. He is the divine son of man and that all that was written about him in the Old Testament was accomplished. Now we don't have time to go through all of the prophecies that are found in the Old Testament that relate to Jesus' coming and what he accomplished here on earth. But here he says it's by the prophets. I believe this references all those who spoke and wrote down Old Testament scripture. He's using prophets in a very broad, generic term to refer to even Moses and David. And so we have prophecies in the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. We have prophecies in the Psalms, like Psalm 22, 31, 69, 110, and others. And there's the great prophecy in Isaiah 53, that describes the servant of the Lord, the servant of Yahweh who would come and would give himself as in the place of Israel's transgressions. One who would be sacrificed for sin. So friends, the the amazing thing is that everything that took place on that Easter weekend 2,000 years ago was according to plan was according to the scriptures. Paul made this clear in 1 Corinthians 15 as he describes the gospel. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. You see, the New Testament writers go out of their way to make sure that we as readers understand that what took place there was not by accident, but was according to the predetermined plan of God. Everything took place according to the intentionality of his plan. God was in control. He was orchestrating these events, and Jesus knew that they were happening. 
But there's a second surprise that we're confronted with in this text. Not only the intentionality of God's plan, but we're confronted with the inhumanity of Jesus' sufferings. The inhumanity of Jesus' sufferings. In verses 32 and 33. As we said, Jesus has presented himself as the divine son of man. He was the one predicted and promised in the Old Testament. And as he walked upon this earth, he lived a perfect life. The Bible is very clear that Jesus never sinned. Even though he was tempted like you and I are, he never committed any sort of sin. He was completely and totally innocent. He is the only one who lived his life in complete innocence. He never had a bad thought. He never uttered a bad word. He never had a bad attitude. He never got anywhere close to anything that could be labeled bad or evil or sinful or wrong. He never even got close to breaking any of God's laws. And yet, this perfectly holy, innocent one that should be praised and lauded and be put on a pedestal for being such a perfect one experienced the ignominy of a horrible death. And Jesus describes exactly what was going to take place to him. Look at verse 32 and we'll begin to go through these descriptions that he gives. First he says this, for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. First he said he'll be delivered over. The son of man will be delivered or handed over. Jesus, uh, or rather Matthew's account of Jesus saying this says that the, it will be the chief priests and scribes, the Jewish leaders that were ultimately going to be handing over Jesus to the Gentiles. Gentiles is the word for those who were not Jews. And so in the case of the Easter story, those who Jesus was handed over to were the Romans. The Roman Empire was in control of the whole Mediterranean world at that time, including Israel. And they had a governor there in Judea by the name of Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate. The scriptures attest to, there's also archaeological evidence of finding his name. This was the man who was ruling Judea at this time. And Jesus knows when he goes to Jerusalem that he will ultimately be in the hands of the Jewish religious leaders, but he's going to be handed over, delivered over to the Romans. And this is exactly how it happened I want you to see how these predictions came true. And so you can either just listen or flip a few pages to, to see these. But turn to Luke 22, just a few chapters to your right. Luke 22, verse 66, right near the end of the chapter. Luke 22, verse 66 says, When the day came... When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes. So here we have this group of the chief priests and the scribes. These are the Jewish religious leaders, and they have Jesus in custody. And then look, let your eye go down to 23 verse 1. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before 
Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Here we see that the Jews delivered over Jesus to the Romans, to Pontius Pilate, and there he remained until he was crucified. The Jews hated Jesus. They accused him falsely. They found trumped up charges to be able to bring against him. They convinced themselves that this was right. And they continued to move forward to seek that his life would be ended. And so we see Jesus predicting he was going to be delivered over to Gentiles. And that's exactly what happened. But the second thing that we see that is part of Jesus' suffering is number two, that he would be mocked. Jesus predicted there, verse Luke 18, verse 32, he will be mocked. Jesus prophesies and knows that what he will face in Jerusalem is mockery. This is the language that is spoken out of contempt, out of hate and anger. It involves words that are intended to put down, words that are made to belittle, words that are, that are made to bring the other person to great shame. But again, is Jesus one who deserves to receive such mockery? Did he do anything to other people that would deserve such hatred, such mockery? No, he came, walked upon this earth, and he exhibited in true form the love of God for all humanity. He did not just go to the rich and the powerful. He did not just go to those who would likewise serve him back. He went to all peoples. He went to the poor. He went to the lame. He went to the blind. He went to the outcasts of Israel. He was willing to touch the lepers, those who didn't even want to get close to, people didn't want to get close to. Jesus came and exhibited the love of God for humanity. He was the one who showed kindness, and yet here he is mocked. This prophecy was fulfilled. Flip again to Luke 22. Luke 22, in those, some of the, around those same verses, verse 63, Luke 22, 63 says, now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. And they also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. But it didn't stop there. Turn to 23.11. Luke 23.11. Now as he's in the custody of Herod, he says, and Herod with the sol his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. And they arrayed him in splendid clothing and then sent him back to Pilate. And then when he's finally on the cross, you think it might stop when they see him bleeding and suffering upon the cross, but it doesn't. Look at verse 36. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Jesus endured mockery. It's undeniable. He predicted it. He knew it was coming and it happened. But shockingly, it goes on. Back in Luke 18, verse 32, it says that he will be shamefully treated or mistreated. Now, most commentators believe that this is simply a synonym for mockery, that just as he was mocked, so he'll be shamefully treated. 
But it shows us once again the ugly and hateful treatment that Jesus received. They sought to humiliate him and to shame him. Again, we've, we just saw how that played out in numerous ways as different groups of people, the Jews, Herod, the soldiers, they all sought to mock and treat him with contempt. But the fourth thing that Jesus describes and predicts is going to take place to him in Jerusalem is that he will be spit upon. You'll see that last part of verse 32 in Luke 18. He would be spit upon. This was a further sign, a physical sign of disapproval and disdain. It showed their hatred, their vitriol, their disgust for the, such a man. They were so enraged, so hating this man, so ashamed by his very mere presence that they spit upon him. They wanted to communicate in every way possible their disdain for this man. Now Luke himself doesn't record this taking place during Passion Week, but Matthew does. In Matthew 26, verse 67, it says, and then they spit in his face and struck him and some slapped him saying, prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? And further in 27, chapter 27, verse 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his hand and kneeling before him, they mocked him saying, hail king of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. When they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. Friends, they treated Jesus inhumanely as they sought to shame him and torture him. To not only bring physical pain, but also emotional pain of rejection upon him. But again, Jesus knew this was going to happen. He predicts it here back in our text in Luke 18. But the fifth thing that Jesus says is going to happen to him is that he will be flogged. He will be flogged, it says. Verse 33, after flogging him, they will kill him. It's at this moment that Jesus particularly begins to describe the physical pain and suffering that he would receive. Flogging refers to a specific Roman judicial punishment that took place that they reserved for their criminals. Before they executed their criminals and put them upon the cross, they would have them go through this flogging. They wanted them to suffer, not just to be killed. That could happen easily with a sword and happen very quickly. But they wanted their criminals to suffer painfully over a long period of time. And that included a scourging or a flogging. One source describes flogging in this way. It says the victim was to be scourged, was stripped and made to stretch his arms around a pillar or boulder or another large object, typically at a forward leaning angle. His hands were then bound tightly on the other side of the pillar or boulder so that his arms were distended and his back stretched taut. 
He was then whipped with the Roman flagellum, which is a whip with two or three long leather strips attached to a short wooden handle. Knotted in along the leather strips were pieces of metal and bone that dug into and then tore out flesh during the whipping, which shredded the victim's back from the neck to the buttocks. It wasn't uncommon for the victims of the Roman scourge to die from the ensuing blood loss and or shock. Friends, this is part of the inhumane torture that Jesus Christ received. And again, this prediction proved true. Jesus said, or it's recorded for us in John 19, verse 1, then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. Now, Pilate himself wouldn't have, have done this. He would have commissioned his soldiers to carry out this flogging. This, a simple description, he was flogged, and yet a brutal event. Now, this torture itself would have left Jesus close to death, and yet he still had to undergo the agony of crucifixion, of carrying his own cross, and Jesus knew that was coming too, and that's the, the last piece that Jesus reveals in terms of his suffering in Luke 18. He says, after flogging him, they will kill him. Matthew's account of this prediction in Matthew 20 has the word crucify. They will crucify him. Jesus knew that he would be killed upon a Roman cross. And he outlines it specifically. Who killed Jesus? Was it the Jews or the Romans? Yes. The answer is yes. The scriptures are clear that the Jews are responsible for killing Jesus. They're the ones that, that arrested him and handed him over to the Romans and that cried out, crucify him, crucify him. And, and Pilate says, but this man has done nothing wrong. And they said, crucify him. Let his blood be on us and our children. They very self-consciously knew what they were doing. But did the Romans kill Jesus? Yes, they did. They nailed the nails. They lashed the whip and they raised the cross. And we know that just as Jesus here says that he will be killed, he will be crucified, we know that it took place exactly as Jesus knew and predicted that it would. He would be killed by these Gentiles. Going over to Luke 23, I want you to see that each piece of this prediction that Jesus gives came true in time and space. Jesus was not fabricating anything. He was giving us a true prediction as a true prophet of God and it came about exactly as he predicted. Luke 23, verse 32. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. They brought him there to kill him. They put him upon a cross. They crucified him along with the other criminals that were at his side. Crucifixion was another invention of the Romans. 
Again, they sought to not just to put their criminals to death, but they sought to have them suffer. It involved the criminal being nailed to two beams of wood. Nails would go through the hands or wrists and also the feet. We know it went through the feet particularly because we have found in an ossuary in Israel, it's commonly called a bone box where the remains of someone were put, an old 2,000-year-old heel bone from the first century that still has an iron nail through it, showing that this was a method of crucifixion by the Romans. Now, this isn't uh, a heel bone that's claimed to belong to Jesus, but it shows that this is how those were crucified by the Romans. After being nailed there upon the ground, the cross was then raised up to then be placed in a hole in the ground. He was then left there to die a long and painful death. Because of the flogging that took place upon his back, it would rest there upon the rough wood for hours. And yet the way that the Romans would nail them to the cross, they could not get a breath of air. And so the, 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 those that were nailed had to press and pull to raise up just to get a breath in order to stay alive. After such agonizing torture that they'd already received, it was painful to press against those nails, both in the, the hands and the feet, in order to gasp for a breath. The, the, their backs that would, were, were so torn up would have to rub against that wood to go up and down. Again, it was excruciating for hours. We're told that Jesus hung on that cross for three hours. In Luke 23, verse 44, it says, and now it was about the sixth hour when he was crucified, that is, and that is about noon, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, or 3 p.m., when the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Jesus died there upon the cross. There are some that would like to, that have said through history that Jesus didn't really die, he just passed out. And so then when he uh, got placed into the cool, dark tomb, then he, his spirits revived and he was able to rise and, and walk out of the tomb. Friends, the Romans were experts in execution. They would not take anyone down from the cross until all of their life had been expend, expelled. And we know that as they came, they were going to break the legs of each of the prisoners so they could no longer push themselves up for a breath and they would then die a short death. When they came to Jesus, he had already died. And they simply stabbed his side with a spear. Which also was in accordance with the Old Testament. And so friends, what Jesus predicted in Luke 18 took place just days later. 
And this was a historical event that took place outside of Jerusalem in the first century. This is a historical event that cannot be denied. Even Josephus, a Jewish historian, mentioned the crucifixion in his work, Antiquities of the Jews. But as we've said, in light of who Jesus is, in light of all that he came to do, in light of the love and, that he showed, it's shocking, it's surprising that he would undergo such brutal and inhumane suffering. And yet this is exactly what the Bible says took place. Now I ask you, what would you do if you knew that those sorts of things awaited you? Would you walk with the same pace as you went towards that city where you knew it would happen? Would you seek to go as confidently? Would you tell people? Would you continue on with a peaceful heart knowing that you were doing God's will? We all would be agonizing. And we see in the Garden of Gethsemane that there was agony in Christ's heart. But we see here that Jesus continued to march towards Jerusalem confidently. He did not flinch even though he knew the cost, even though he knew the pain that he would experience, the mockery, the shame, the rejection, he did not flinch, friends. Why? Why was he so resolved? Why did he continue to go to the city where he would be murdered? We'll return to that in just a bit. But let's look now at the third surprise of this text. The third surprise of the text is the inevitability of Jesus' resurrection. We've seen the intentionality of God's plan, the inhumanity of Jesus' suffering, and the third surprise of this text is the inevitability of Jesus' resurrection. Friends, death comes to us all. Death is not surprising. We all know that death is part of what it means to be a human. It should not surprise us, and yet we seek to push the thought of it out of our minds, we seek to forget that that is the end of all of us, but nonetheless, we shouldn't be shocked by it. So to hear that Jesus died, as of any other human, and say, okay, it was a horrible death, but everyone dies. But not only did Jesus die, but what is strange and shocking is that Jesus didn't remain dead. He didn't stay in the grave. His resurrection was just as planned and just as predicted as was his death. He knew that he would be raised up. Notice what he says at the end of verse 33. He says, on the third day, he will rise. He being the son of man, he being himself, he knew that he would rise. This is the prediction that Jesus gives over and over again is that on the third day, he would rise. Now, there have been many through history who have sought to deny that Jesus ever came back from the dead. They've denied the resurrection. But the evidence for it is overwhelming. It was not just a fable created by Christians it was a factual, historical event that changed the world. And it happened exactly like Jesus said it would. According to the Jewish reckoning of time, he was in the ground three days. 
Now we hear three days and we think three 24-hour periods that he's going to be there 72 hours in the grave, but that's not how the Jews would have understood it. They hear three days on the third day and they would have understood it as to be in the ground on the part of any of three days. And this is what happened. He was crucified on a Friday. He was buried in the ground. He was there on a Friday, all day Saturday, and there Sunday morning only to rise there on Sunday morning. He was in the ground for part of three days. On the third day, he rose. And we see this happen. Again, Luke 24 describes that event. It says, Luke 24 Verse 1, that on the first day of the week, that is Sunday, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Friends, do you see how the very words that Jesus said in our text that we're looking at this morning, Luke 18, the angel tries to remind the women that were at the tomb, hey, do you remember? Jesus predicted this. He told you already that he was going to be delivered over to the Gentiles and that he was going to be crucified and on the third day he would rise. And at that moment it says they remembered his words. It clicked. They saw the empty tomb. They saw the resurrected Jesus. There were, do you notice all the witnesses that were there? there these women were here. Then they tell it to the eleven. And then it says later in verses 10 through 12 that they went to go check it out for themselves. Okay, we're not just going to take the women's testimony for it. We're going to go see it ourselves. And they confirmed that it was empty. In 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul recounts all of the witnesses who saw Jesus raised from the dead. It says that he appeared, Jesus appeared to Cephas, that's another name for Peter, then to the 12, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, that is Paul. Jesus did not remain dead. He did not rise from the grave and suddenly whisk away to heaven so that no one saw him. And then the disciples just created this story. No, he showed himself over and over again so that there would be eyewitnesses there in the first century when this story began to go, when this account of his resurrection began to spread through the known Mediterranean world, they could go and ask the very people who saw the empty tomb. These were listed here as witnesses to verify the story. You can't just create a story, name witnesses when those witnesses are still alive. And that's exactly what happened. They could all vouch for the fact that the tomb was empty. Jesus knew that his gruesome death would not be the end of the story. He would rise again. It was inevitable. Jesus here prophesied not only his death, but his resurrection. And as we saw, all of his predictions came true. He was a true prophet, for his words proved true. Now, in light of all the surprises we've seen so far, that this is according to the plan of God, that 
This was uh, exactly what was going to take place in terms of Jesus' suffering, what was going to take place in terms of his resurrection. We would expect the disciples to be shocked themselves, to say, oh, my Lord, no. But they're not. And the reason, the fact that they are not surprised is the fourth surprise of our text. And that is the ignorance of Jesus' disciples. The ignorance of Jesus' disciples is our fourth surprise in Luke 18. I noted at the outset that this is the third prediction that Jesus has given through his ministry. These 12 men had heard this information before and yet they still did not get it. Verse 34 says, but they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them and they did not grasp what was said. Now I ask you, have you ever had a situation where you've been told something maybe a number of times and you didn't get it over those number of times until it was like near the end and then it's finally clicks and you're like, ah, that's what you were trying to say. I had that experience the first time that I dated the woman who's now my wife. Yes, we dated twice. It's a different story for a different time. But the first round, we dated for three months. And at several points throughout those three months, Audrey called together a meeting. Hey, can we, uh, can we go get coffee? I got to talk to you. Sure, yeah, I want to hear your concerns. So sit down, have a conversation. Oh, okay, yeah, I hear you. Get you, okay. Then a week or so later, another time for coffee. And we sit down and talk. And this goes on. Uh, probably five or seven, seven times over the course of the three months. It was not until our breakup conversation at the end of three months that I put it all together that those conversations were all about the same thing. <laughs> Which uh, just tells you I had some things to learn. Uh, to, number one was knowing how to listen. But each time we talked, it was a big deal. I tried to listen. I tried to understand what was going on, but I failed to make the connection to the larger issues. I failed to piece them all together and understand what was truly going on. And that's what's happening with the disciples here in this passage. They hear the words coming out of Jesus' mouth. They understand the nouns and the verbs. That's not a problem. It's the connection to the larger plan of God. How does this fit in with who the Messiah is supposed to be? Because you see, every other expectation about the Jewish Messiah up to this point did not include the idea of a suffering Messiah. Even though the Old Testament predicted it, they were blinded to it. And they were expecting a political savior, a king who would come in and defeat the Romans and set up his kingdom within Israel. Which Jesus will do, by the way. It's just the first, his first advent, his first coming was to come and to give himself as a sacrifice for sin. And so the disciples were confused. They could not see. They were awash in their cultural milieu of understanding about the Messiah and they weren't being driven by the scriptures. But the text gives us two reasons the disciples missed it. And the first is that it was, the comprehension was hidden from them. You'll notice that it says this saying was hidden from them. This means that God in his sovereignty did not allow them to understand what was going on. It was his sovereign will that they did not get it at that point. But the second reason given here is that they failed to grasp it. It says, and they did not grasp what was said. They did not make the connection. They should have made the connection and they didn't. They lacked the perception because they were expecting something else. 
It did not compute that this Jesus they followed for three years and they believed what he said and they said, yes, you are the son of man. Yes, you are the Messiah. And then to hear that this Messiah was gonna go to Jerusalem and face a humbling defeat, it's like they just kept saying, no, 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 he can't mean that. It must be metaphorical or something. I mean, who knows how they rationalized it, but, but they couldn't see how in God's plan, something that was going so great could such, take such a dramatic turn for the worst. And so they totally missed it. But friends, unfortunately, ever since these events in the first century, people have likewise missed the events of Easter, just like the disciples. Oh sure, people have heard the story of Easter. They've heard the story about Jesus dying on the cross. They've heard the story about the resurrection, how he came back to life. But they have been missing the significance of these events. What's the big deal? In fact, there might be some of you who are here today who are in that same boat. You've heard the story or maybe you've even heard it here for the first time and you're hearing about his crucifixion and his, and his resurrection. But you're not quite sure, what does this mean? Why is this important? What's the big deal? Well, the disciples here did not understand. It didn't click for them until after the resurrection. The New Testament makes that very clear that it was not until after Jesus had been raised from the dead that they fully understood it took a divine action of God to open their minds and hearts so that they could realize what was happening through Jesus' death and resurrection. And when he did, when Jesus opened the hearts of the disciples to understand what took place at the cross and in his resurrection, they were then given a message that changed the world and changed millions of lives. And it's a message that can change our lives today here in the 21st century as well. I want you to turn with me as we close out to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. And this is where we'll end this morning. Some of the final verses, verse 40, 44. Luke 24, verse 44. At this point in the narrative, Jesus has risen from the dead He's appeared to his disciples. He's convinced him that he's not a ghost, that he's actually a physical body. He even, eat a, even ate a broiled fish to prove it. But here in verse 44 to 49, we see that Jesus opens the minds of the disciples to finally understand. It says, then he said to them, Luke 24, 44, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things and behold, I am sending the promise of my father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Jesus opens their minds to understand the scriptures and he reminds them of the very thing that we've seen in our text, that Jesus had predicted his death and resurrection. This was not new. But it's because of the gracious action of God to remove the blinders from their eyes that they are finally able to make the connection in their minds for why the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus was such a big deal. 
They're able to understand God's plan. They're able to understand the scriptures, it says. And they're able to see how those scriptures pointed to Jesus and how they predicted his suffering and his resurrection. These all had to be fulfilled. But we come back to why. Why did these things have to happen? Verse 47 tells us this. Look at it. 47, that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Jesus was crucified, buried, and raised on the third day so that you and I are able to be forgiven of our sins. Friends, we have a debt of sin that we could not pay. We were our sinners against a holy God. The wages of sin is death. We deserve to die because of our sin, the Bible says. But that would be hopeless if it was left there. But through Jesus, through his death, his sacrificial death upon the cross, he satisfied God's wrath so that all of us who place our faith in him are able to receive forgiveness. We are able to have our debt cleared. And we're able to go as forgiven men and women, recognizing that, that we have our record of debt cleared before the God of heaven. Our guilt is done away with. And it's all because Jesus was the perfect substitute for sinners. Jesus was the perfect one who took our place. And his sacrifice is sufficient to pay for the sins of all who would place their faith in him. Friends, it was through Jesus that the love of God was displayed for humanity. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Friends, eternal life is available to each and every one of us today if we would but place our faith in him. Confess our sin, that we have been sinners against his righteous and holy law, that we have rebelled against him. And to recognize that our only hope is in Christ and trusting in his righteousness and his goodness. When we arrive at the gates of heaven, we need to pull out Jesus' righteousness card because our report card is a failing grade. His is a perfect score and it's only by his grade that we're gonna be able to enter the gates of heaven, friends. We cannot trust any of our own goodness. And so I call upon all of you in the name of Christ to trust in him, find life in his name. You can go home to today knowing that you are a forgiven sinner before the bar of God's justice. May you know the good news that is Easter and the surprising reality that God has displayed his love for sinners such as us. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Oh God in heaven, we thank you for the marvelous truth that Jesus Christ went to the cross on behalf of sinners such as us. Oh Lord, we we do not deserve such love. We do not deserve such mercy. If we were to receive what we deserve, it would be hell for all of eternity. And yet we thank you, Lord, that you did not stay in heaven, keeping the truth to yourself, but you came. You sent your son to enter the create, his own creation, to walk among us, and to then to be rejected delivered up to the Gentiles, mocked, shamefully treated, spit upon, flogged, and killed to pay for our sins. But Father, we on this day rejoice that he did not remain dead, that you and your mighty power showed that Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient and you raised him from the dead and we give you all the praise for your 
majestic power displayed in that single event. And Father, I pray that you'd help each one of us that are here this morning to be able to know that we have made ourselves right with you. May you work in our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.